0: The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Fathers, we read of this next cycle of judgments, completing the seals and now considering the trumpets. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us as a church to see that you are holy and just and that your justice will, in fact, reign That we would take seriously the problem of sin, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of those around us, those in the church and those outside the church, Father, who have no saving grace in Christ. I ask, Lord, that in light of Revelation 8, that you would compel us to become, if we're not already a people of fervent prayer, that we would rightly pray for justice to come, for justice to reign for you to exercise for the vindication of your name, your judgment here on earth now, and in the end. I pray as well, Father, that 2023 would be marked by fervent prayer for the lost, that we of all people, knowing that your judgment is upon us and is coming, and we know the degree to which that judgment will cause many to weep and mourn for all eternity that we would be bold in praying to you for salvation, certainly for our family and friends and our co-workers and neighbors and for those that we don't know around this great earth. I pray, Father, that um, our hearts would be rightly broken for the lost in light of the judgment that is here and that is coming. That we would not be so complacent in our lives and so self-centered in building our own kingdoms that we would neglect the necessity of this type of intercessory prayer. Make us faithful to that end, Father, for the sanctification of our own souls, certainly for the help that those who are experiencing injustice will receive, for the salvation of the lost, um, but ultimately for your glory. I fear, Father, that even now, this first day of 2023, that uh, many of us are still asleep. And so I ask that you'd wake us up, um, that we would enter this year properly in order to bring you the most honor and glory with our lives individually and collectively as a body as well. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Revelation chapter 8 is a... uh, It's going to be a repeat, and we're going to see that again when we get to the bowls. And so if you say to yourself, I've heard this before, then that's good. You're actually interpreting Revelation correctly. Uh, There are subtle nuances that we're going to look at in each piece, and hopefully they will be uh, profitable and good food to you. There's some really great things that I want to show you here that I think a general reading will have a tendency to miss. So hopefully my studies will be beneficial to you. Um, so the beginning of a brand new year, it's strange for me to even say 2023. I don't know if it's strange for you. At the beginning of each year, most of you know experts from a variety of different fields, they, they decide to speak up or write or, or tell people about what their predictions are, their speculations on the year are. Uh, in every single field, whether it's going to be a good year or a bad year, some say it'll be a year of war, others a year of peace, some say economic progress. Most are saying, at least here in the West, economic stagnation and or recession and or depression, depending upon who you talk to. Everybody has something to say. I'm always fascinated, too. Those who get it right, well, then they toot their own horns, maybe their own trumpets. And those who get it wrong, they don't, we don't ever hear from them again, right? But everybody has something to say. When it comes to theology, the, those in different um, Denominations and different backgrounds—they forecast on how God's story of redemption is progressing as well. Our dispensational friends say that things will continually get worse until the rapture. Our post-millennial friends say the exact opposite: the things will continually get better until Christ comes again. Um, I do believe that a more accurate rendering of the scriptures, and I believe human history, testify that God continues to save and he continues to judge simultaneously for all human history. That's what we've seen, and that's what the Bible, I believe, clearly teaches. In other words, 2023 will be very much like 2022, and very much like every other year since the ascension of Jesus Christ. God judging, and God saving concurrently. So with the opening of seals 1 through 6, we essentially got the the, the consummation, the story that plays out between our Lord's first and second coming. And as we saw in these last days in the seals, we saw God doing things like judging and we saw God doing things like saving. The very thing that we expect to see until Christ comes again in glory. And then we saw in Revelation chapter seven, the culmination of that was what? The culmination was God's people gathered in the throne room worshiping God. If you have your Bible open Uh, Turn back with me to Revelation 7. So the culmination of the story in verses 9 and 10, John sees a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And what were they doing? They were worshiping God, right? So we get a, a, a full story in the seals, number one through six. In other words, The seals, one through six, the seal judgments, it's the first rendering in the book of Revelation of how God's story plays out in total, beginning, middle, and end. And Revelation 8 picks up, and it's the opening of the seventh seal. And the seventh seal is a bit anticlimactic because the seventh seal is the introduction to the seven trumpets. It doesn't really have an identity in itself other than it's going to usher in the seven trumpets. Now, the seven trumpets... For those of you who are looking for some really good, interesting, eschatological detail that you can hang lots of hats on and have great conversations with your friends, you're not going to get it here. The the trumpets describe the the same events during the same time period as the seven seals. In other words, it's a, a reiteration or a recapitulation or a retelling of the same story. Just this time from a different vantage point or a different angle. Okay, and A brother said to me last week, he goes, you know, the way you're preaching through Revelation, it's far less interesting than from a dispensational perspective where I can look at news events and I can talk about certain things happening. That may be true, but we want to interpret Scripture correctly, not based upon what we think to be more interesting. Um, so the trumpets are going to retell the seals differently. Same story, same time, just different vantage point." Um, and so this morning what I would like for us to do, I'd like to do, us just see one thing, and that is the revelation of prayer in Revelation 8. What does Revelation 8 and the beginning of the trumpets, the first four trumpets, tell us about prayer? Specifically, prayer for God's justice to come now and prayer for God's salvation to come now. And by God's grace, 2023 will be marked by you individually and by us as a church praying fervently for God's justice and for God's salvation simultaneously until Christ comes again in glory. Amen? Two points I want to share with you. One, prayers for justice. And number two, prayers for salvation. Prayers for justice, prayers for salvation. The theme of the sermon is this. God moves. Profound, you ready? God moves when His people pray. God moves when His people pray. If His people pray for justice, God brings justice. If His people pray for salvation, God brings salvation. That is both encouraging and I think humbling for us to hear as a people. So point number one, prayers for justice. Look at verse one with me. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, if you want a book where you get lots of different commentators saying lots of different things, then pick up the book of Revelation because they're all over the place on certain things. There's great debate on this. On, on what this half hour of silence meant. Of course, we don't believe it's an exact half hour. Time is relative. It's symbolic. It's metaphoric. What we do know, there's a period of time of silence. Um, I think the two interpretations that work best is that the silence was the calm before the storm, right? The trumpets are going to be uh, uh, bring judgment again, and so this is that proverbial calm before the storm. Habakkuk chapter 2, as God's about to judge the Chaldeans, the prophet Habakkuk said the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Before what? Before he judges. And we get a similar teaching in Zephaniah chapter 1 as the Lord pronounces judgment upon Judah. The prophet Zephaniah said this, Zephaniah 1.7, Be silent before the Lord God for the day of the Lord is near. So the silence is indicative that judgment is coming. What we also see, and I think this is a a, a decent translation um, or interpretation, that we see that in in Jewish tradition, inside the temple, when the priests were going to engage in the sacrifice of incense, we're going to look a lot at that today, the offering of incense, there was complete silence inside the temple. And that certainly works in our context because John is about to see, he's about to get a vision of an angel approaching the throne and burning incense. And that's going to take place right before the seven angels blow the seven trumpets. If I had to lean, I think I would go that way. Um, Look at verse 2. John says, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So seven angels, seven servants of the Lord. Again, the number seven represents completion or fullness. They're given seven trumpets, each to blow a trumpet at the proper time. Now, in the Old Testament, we know the blowing of a trumpet uh, was usually tied to war and tied to judgment. Most of you know your Old Testament story of Jericho and what happened there. In fact, it was the marching and the trumpets that brought the walls of Jericho down as as God was going to deliver Jericho into the hands of, of Joshua and to Israel. He commanded this, Joshua 6, 4, seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall what? Shall blow their trumpets. And of course, they did. They marched. They blew the trumpets. And what happened to the walls of Jericho? You all know this from your Sunday school. If you attended Sunday school, they all came crumbling down. In other words, the trumpets are indicative of God's judgment. But here in Revelation chapter 8, we're not talking about a rebellious city like Jericho. We're talking about the entire world experiencing the temporal justice of the thrice holy God. But before the trumpets are blown, Jesus, John, John sees another angel. And he does something that's we're really not used to. And we don't even talk about it that much in evangelical circles. He appears before God with a golden censer. Look at verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel." So first you say, well, what is a censer? If you've ever been to a a Roman Catholic mass, a high mass, and you've seen the priest go down, he holds a censer. It's suspended on a chain, it has a little bull-like figure, and there's something down there that's burning incense, right? So this angel has a censer, and he's given much incense to put into this censer to burn in the presence of God. And the burning of the incense is commingled here with many prayers, the many prayers of the saints. In other words, look at verse 4 again. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints are offered up as a pleasing aroma to God. Now in the Old Testament, and this is the reason that we don't really know what this means, the altar of incense was located. So remember, in the temple you had the holiest of holies. That's where God would descend and commune with his people. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that was covered by a veil. And then outside the veil, you had the holy place. And that's where the priest would come in and exercise their, um, um, they, they burn the incense and they would offer up offerings to the Lord. Then outside of that, you had the, uh, the court of the Jews where you would have the, the altar of sacrifice and then, of course, the court of the Gentiles. Well, the altar of incense was, was placed just outside the veil. Literally right outside the veil. And so when the incense would burn and the smoke would burn, it would pass through the veil and into the holiest of holies, into the presence of God, night and day, 365 days a year, this incense would go into the presence of God. There were four spices and a tree resin that were burned day and night. And we know from the Old Testament that the incense, the burning of incense was associated with prayer. And the two were tied together. David, for example, in Psalm 141, he said, He prayed this, he said, may my prayer be set before you like what? Like incense. And of course we know Zechariah the priest, we know this uh, recently going through Luke chapter 1 and 2 with Christmas, that he was offering incense in the temple in Luke chapter 1 while all the people were assembled outside doing what? They were praying, right? So incense and prayer were always tied together. In other words, what we have here is The incense being burned by the angel before the Lord is symbolic of the prayers of God's people, listen, throughout all of history, certainly from the time of Jesus' ascension until he comes again. That means your prayers, my prayers, the prayers of the saints who have gone before us, all being brought into the presence of the living God, into the sanctuary, like the incense received by him in a manner that he says is pleasing. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. The, the, the tens of thousands of prayers that have been lifted up to God that have come into his presence that he's been pleased to receive. Your prayers, our prayers. Now, that's amazing in and of itself but then something in verse five that happens is truly extraordinary and not practiced in the Old Testament. Look at verse five. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, ramblings, and flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So the same censer that was used to burn incense to bring into the presence of God that were coupled with our prayers, the angel takes, metaphorically speaking, takes the censer like a bowl, scoops up coals from the altar and throws it down upon the earth and in so doing so what happens the result is a cataclysmic prelude to the judgments you have peals of thunder ramblings flashes of lightning and an earthquake and you think wow now wait a minute i recognize that 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 imagery is very similar to what to mount sinai that sounds very similar to when god descended upon mount sinai and exodus and he gave the law to his people israel And and the the teaching then was the same that it is now. He was revealing his majesty and his holiness. And in the giving of the law, that if they rebelled against him and they did not follow the law, if they were disobedient to God, they'd be judged by God. And so here we have this prelude, this thunder and the lightning and the earthquake that the angels throwing down the earth is the prelude to the judgment to come for all those who what? Who continue in rebellion against God across the entire earth because the coals hit the entire earth. But what must not be missed, and I pray we don't miss it, is the connection here between the prayers of the saints, that's us, and the blowing of these seven trumpets. It's an answer to prayer. In other words, the seven trumpets are connected to the prayers of God's people for centuries. God's people praying for what? For justice. For thousands of years now, we have people going all the way back to, in the Old Testament, then under the New Covenant and the New Testament, God's people praying for God to act justly in an unjust world. I'm sure you remember how Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6. He told them to pray, verse 10, Matthew 6, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so this is how Jesus taught us to pray. The coming of God's kingdom, as we saw in the seven seals, is not just God saving people and God making all things new. The prayer for God's kingdom to come and for things to be on earth as it is in heaven is a prayer for divine judgment. Jesus taught the disciples to pray like that. Many of you have prayed like that. It is a prayer for, if we're serious, for things to be on earth as they are in heaven right now. And that means what? Sinless holy, righteous, without all the evil that we see here. This is part of that prayer. This is part of it. And so the, the insertion here, verses 3 through 5, which kind of breaks up the, the pattern of the seven trumpets, it's, it's inserted to encourage the saints. It's inserted to bring comfort to the saints, especially those who are being treated unjustly. Now, as we saw when we looked at the seven letters written to the seven churches in Asia Minor, they were suffering horribly under the reign of Domitian. And so, this insertion here that their prayers are being answered by God for justice would have been very encouraging. And certainly for our brothers and sisters throughout the centuries who have been treated horribly because they professed Christ and they followed Jesus. When they pray to God, God is saying, I hear your prayers, and I'm answering your prayers, and he's answering them temporally in real time, and he says, and I will answer them when my son comes again in glory. In other words, when God's people cry out, God hears, and God answers. When God's people cry out for justice, do you believe that? When God's people cry out for justice, he hears and he answers. That's what this is telling us. The incense is going into the presence of God and his response is the seven trumpets. That's a response to the prayers of the saints for God to act, for God to move. Now, so oftentimes it seems, I think one of the reasons that we don't pray and we don't gather to pray as a church is because we think that words just audibly go up into thin air. That we pray and we say all the right things, but they're lifted up in vain with little or no hope of being answered. All throughout history, God's people have prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And according to this passage, God has heard those prayers and is answering them. He has answered them by bringing judgment. He is answering them by bringing judgment. And he will ultimately judge the living and the dead and establish this kingdom that what? That has no end. That has no end. And that means, my beloved, This is an extraordinary thought. Every prayer for justice that you lift up, every single one God hears and answers, either now, in the future, or when Christ comes. Every single one. Every single prayer that you lift up for the unborn and the injustice, the injustice that's being exercised against them is heard by God and answered by God. Every single prayer you lift up, for justice to reign upon the murderer or the rapist or those who steal or those who abuse others is heard by God and answered by God either now or in the end. Every prayer that you lift up against the evil governments like China or North Korea or Afghanistan or Iran or Russia, God hears and He answers. Now or in the end. So when you pray for those who are those women who are sold into sex trafficking, or you are praying and I hope you are for those women that are suffering at the hand of the Taliban in Afghanistan no longer being able to be educated now your prayer is heard and your prayer will be answered that means my beloved your prayers for justice they make a difference they make a difference in that God responds to the prayers of his people. One of the means of grace, this is an extraordinary thought, and if you can get this, you'll pray differently in 2023. One of the means of grace that God uses to bring justice upon the earth is the prayers of his saints. When his people pray, God moves. And you say, well, then the converse is likely true, and you are right. When we are silent, when we do not pray for justice... We do not pray for God to move and help those who are in desperate need. We can expect things to remain the same or get worse. God moves when his people pray, which means, my beloved, if we're serious about justice being on earth, of it being on earth as it is in heaven, then we must be a people who do not lose heart and stop praying. And listen, I know how easy that is. If you've prayed for certain injustices that you've seen throughout your life and there's been no answer to the prayer, I, you say, you know what, I've prayed for this for years now and there's no change. It just gets worse. God either doesn't hear or he doesn't care. Neither are true. God hears, listen, and he is answering that by judging right now. And, and we really don't know the degree to which he's doing that, Right? And he will judge ultimately in the end. Either way, every prayer you pray for justice is 100% guaranteed to be answered by God. And if that's true, then we need to be praying. We need to be praying a lot more and a lot more fervently for the injustice that we see We need to pray for God's righteousness to come. We need to pray for his goodness and his justice to prevail on earth. He doesn't ignore those prayers. The exact opposite, he hears them and he's pleased to receive them. The reason it's attached to the incense at the altar right outside the holiest of holies, he receives them and he's pleased by the aroma. He loves it when we pray for justice and he takes that in and he hears it. He doesn't ignore it and he answers it. So we must continue to pray regardless of the idle speculation of the talking heads of things are going to get better or worse. 2023, if we want to honor God as a church, we want to be a people who pray for His justice to come, for it to truly be on earth as it is in heaven. You say, well, I really don't do that, pastor. Uh, If you want to be honest, i we just don't do that as a church. We don't do a lot of that either. So what is the struggle? And I thought about this, and there were several there were several aspects that came, but I want to give you just three quick ones before we look at our second point. First, I don't think we pray for justice because some of us think we're not supposed to. Right? We have this very strange teaching in the context of the gospel and the new covenant that under the new covenant, we don't pray for justice with God. We think that prayers like David, Psalm 109, are, are not Gospel prayer. Psalm 109, David prayed. listen to this. Psalm 109, verses six to seven. David said, "Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. That's justice. Let an accuser stand at his right hand when he is tried, let him be found guilty, and may his prayers condemn him. That's a prayer for justice, from God to those who are fighting against David." You say, "Well, that, that, that's, that's hard for me to even think about praying, Pastor. Well, how about Habakkuk? You want a prayer for justice? Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk's crying out to God. How long, Lord? Must I call for help? But you do not listen. Habakkuk says or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction, Habakkuk says, and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict, it abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. Where is your justice, God? He's praying for God to act justly in the midst of an unjust world. Now, what we don't understand, and I'd like to erase this New Covenant misnomer, it's not wrong to pray for justice in the context of the gospel. Simply because we live in the New Covenant doesn't mean we should not pray for justice. Remember, justice is the guilty getting what? What they deserve. Justice is good. Not only is justice good, but when God exercises justice upon those who remain in sin and evil... He is glorified in it. You say, well, wait a minute. If it's good and it's God-glorifying, then we ought to pray for justice. Amen. And if you are not praying for justice because you think it's not good or not God-glorifying in the context of the gospel or the new covenant, then I would say that minimally you're foolish and possibly sinning because you're misunderstanding what justice is. Okay? Second reason I think that we don't do, we don't pray for justice is because we um, we have willful, unrepentant sin in our own lives, right? I mean, if you're going to pray for justice and you're living in willful, unrepentant sin, then you're asking God to what? To judge you, to punish you, right? So if there's willful, unrepentant sin in your life, you likely will not be fervent about praying for justice because one, on the one hand, you don't want to be a hypocrite saying, Lord, bring your justice upon them, but not on me even though I'm doing what they're doing. Or you're afraid that that prayer may be answered and you too might be judged in a Hebrews chapter 10 sense. Remember what the author of Hebrews said, Hebrews 10, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains what? A sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So if we're in sin, we don't pray for God's justice So we don't pray for justice because we think it's contrary to the gospel. That's not true. We don't pray for justice because we're in willful, unrepentant sin ourselves. And the last one I'll give you before our last point. We don't pray for justice, certainly on a global scale, because I think we just lack faith in prayer. We just don't think that God's going to answer it. You know, we'll pray for for lots of things. We'll pray for healing when we're sick. We pray for that new job and we need a job. We'll pray for those relationships. And we we do that thinking, well, God can answer these smaller prayers. These aren't too hard for him. But when it comes to asking God to to act justly on on a global scale, on the stage of the world, when we pray for God to, to intervene into Ukraine and to stop the war with Russia, we think that's too big for God so we, we don't pray. Or, or maybe we, we've stopped praying for God to overturn the 43 years of the brutal rule in Iran, the Islamic rule in Iran. We stop praying for the people to be set free and the Christians to be able to worship because we think for 43 years we've prayed that and it hasn't changed, therefore. We don't think that justice will come to the abortionists, so we stop praying. We don't think that God will discipline those engaged in the sexual revolution, those who are striving to have our children mutilated in the name of gender identity. We don't pray this because we think it's too big. When God's people are not praying, though, my beloved, when we say no to praying for justice, um, we should not be surprised when evil gets an upper hand, you know? We shouldn't be shocked when there are no checks, no balances to justice, when 2023 looks much worse than 2022, we should say, am I praying that God acts justly? The passage clearly reveals that God's justice is in direct response to the prayers of his people. He acts justly upon the earth now based upon how we pray. So if we're not praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we're not praying for God's justice, then, then we can't really complain when we see the world spiraling out of control. We can't complain, saints. If you're praying fervently for God's justice, then, then by all means complain. But you can't if you're not. right? One of the things, Western Christians, we are great at pointing out sin and evil, and we're better yet, we're really good at complaining about it. We point it out and we complain about it, but we fall woefully short when it comes to praying about it. Right? So if you're going to point it out and you're going to complain, please attach with that prayers for justice or stop complaining because what do you expect? You're not asking God to move so things get worse. And that's how it works. Pray that God would move to vindicate His holy name. Pray that God would move to bring justice to those who are oppressed. Pray that God would be pleased to give relief to people who cannot get it themselves. Uh, We must pray for justice because it is good and glorifying to God. And if you're not doing that because you have willful, unrepentant sin in your life, then confess from that sin and turn from it and begin praying. And don't lack faith. God's a big God. If there's anything wrong with our prayers, they're way, way too small. We pray too small as a church and too small as a people. He's a big God. He likes big prayers. He answers big prayers. Okay? So, first, from this passage, I hope we see the connection between prayer and justice. God moves according to the prayers of his people. So, second point, last point, how does God answer these prayers? How does he do that? Number two, point number two, prayers for salvation. Look at verse six. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. So they prepared to do what? To exercise God's judgment upon the earth. Now the blowing of the first, we're going to get to just four trumpets today and we'll do the three over the next few weeks. The blowing of the first four trumpets, they're, they're, they're kind of brought together. They're, they're intended to reveal the comprehensiveness and the magnitude of the temporal judgment that has been taking place from the time that Christ rose until he comes again in glory, Right? And and there are four categories, land, sea, rivers, and sky. And each one has God's justice coming upon it. They're they're mostly, the theme would be natural disasters, which would change here if we understand Revelation that many of our natural disasters are not so natural, they're supernatural disasters used by God to bring His judgment upon the earth. The first trumpet brings judgment upon the land. Look at verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. Think metaphoric. Think symbolic, please. And these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. So we must remember the descriptions here. We're we're hearing are symbolic. They're metaphoric. Don't try to picture these things literally. They're used poetically. And, and they're intended rightly to elicit an intellectual and emotional response based upon the magnitude or the scope of devastation that God's going to bring. Hail and fire mixed with blood. Well, that's a good image, right? I mean, that's that just sounds scary, right? Hail, fire, mixed with blood. And it's going to hit a third of the earth. And again, not literally one-third, therefore two-thirds is spared, but a large percent here, a good chunk of the earth, is going to be Uh, experience God's judgment throughout the centuries. The land, the trees, the grass, they're burned. In other words, the devastation is widespread. Okay, I told you it's not as exciting as the dispensational viewpoint. Now, most commentators point out that the seven trumpets parallel the ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt in order to set his people free. Mostly natural in nature, especially these first four Right. In other words, the judgments are used not only to punish evil, those who continue to rebel against God, but they're also to be used as a wake-up call. That God is sovereign, that God is judging, and therefore turn and repent and be saved before the judgment comes upon you. Look at verse 8 in the second trumpet. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Verse 9, a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. So the second trumpet announces judgment, what? Upon the sea. The first one was the land, and now the sea, and it's a picture of this volcanic eruption at sea. And, and the, the impact was a third, again, not literally, but figuratively, a third of all sea life and all ships at sea perishing. And immediately you hear the second trumpet and you probably are thinking, wait a minute, I, I remember that from the plagues. That's Exodus chapter seven. That's the first plague when, when Moses did what? He turned the Nile from water into blood. And, and the parallel matches, right? And that's a good metaphor for it. So the literal transformation of water to blood in Exodus seven is used here metaphorically upon the seas of the earth. In other words, the magnitude and the stench of death that these judgments will bring upon those who refuse to repent and believe is severe, okay? Look at verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs. So first land, then sea, now rivers and springs, drinkable water. Verse 11. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter so the third trumpet sounds um, it's this great star called wormwood coming down and it's it's essentially causing springs and rivers a third at least of the earth to be poisonous um, The wormwood's an herb and you, many of you probably know it it's actually used in certain alcoholic drinks but but used in larger quantities it's poisonous It has a chemical called thujun, and thujun, when received in large quantities, or consumed in large quantities, certainly in a glass of water, has the ability to kill you. And so the picture here, that that the vision that John gets, is that many people drinking poisonous water from these rivers and streams are going to die what? They're going to die violent deaths. You say, well, how, how violent? Death by thujun is torturous. It's preceded by vomiting, tremors, renal damage, and violent seizures before you actually die. So it's not just death by poison, it's death, a violent death through poison. Again, the imagery is metaphoric and it's intended to t- paint a picture of not only massive destruction, but violent death, violent judgment. Verse 12 the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their lights might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. So again, if you know your Old Testament, if you remember our study in Exodus, you're thinking, oh, that's, that's the ninth plague. That's the plague right before the Passover. Remember, for three days, three nights, there was absolute and utter darkness in the land. So, so here it's partial, right? It's not complete, it's a third. Um, but again, we're using metaphor and symbolism here. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean literal. We, in fact, we know, you want, you want to know how we know hermeneutically to interpret this metaphorically? If we took one-third of every day and blotted out the sun, life would cease to exist on earth. So we know it's metaphor because we believe this has been happening for the last minimally 2,000 years. But the imagery of darkness, it always corresponds with judgment. It always corresponds with death. Right, and we we get that Isaiah himself talking about the day of the Lord, use the imagery of darkness. He writes this, Isaiah 13, behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Listen to this, the parallels are beautiful. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. In other words, darkness corresponds well to judgment in both Old and New Testament. In fact, Jesus used similar language when teaching the disciples about his second coming and the judgment that he would bring. Matthew 24, he said in those days, that would be in, in the days that we're in right now, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven in other words God's judgment is connected to darkness so together the four trumpets the first four trumpets they represent the comprehensive nature of God's judgment coming upon land sea rivers and sky and it must be comprehensive because all of life has been impacted by sin and because all sin must be judged all of life land sea rivers and sky must be judged by God now When we hear that, oftentimes our response is, ooh, you mean everything, everywhere? Yes, but the Christian should be responding by saying that's good news. That's great news. If God's going to judge all evil and all sin, it means this, no part of life, your life or anybody else's life, no part of human history, no part of the world will be left to continue in a state of sin and evil. No part will be left broken because God promises to judge it comprehensively and totally. God moves throughout history, and he has, and he will continue to bring judgment upon men, upon governments, and upon institutions. Sometimes through natural means, as we'll see in the next couple weeks, sometimes through other means. But God is constantly and actively judging wickedness and evil. He is a just God, and it is good when he does. And every single judgment We know this. Every single judgment that we experience now on earth points to the ultimate judgment. It is every single judgment here is a wake-up call to that judgment to come when Christ comes in glory. When that true, what we would say, the, the true comprehensive judgment of land, sea, river, and sky is brought by Christ when he judges the living and the dead and he establishes his eternal kingdom. So in light of the utter devastation these first four trumpets will bring, very similar to the first four seals remember the first four horsemen uh, i want to ask and answer two questions before we close number one what hope do you have as a christian of making it through right we believe these judgments are temporal right there's the great day of judgment that will come but we believe that god has been exercising his judgment now for 2000 years so what hope do you have I mean, when you hear about the seals and the four horsemen and then you hear about these trumpets the first four trumpets and the the last three the woes are even worse and you ask, yourself, how can I possibly get through? What hope do I have as a believer of making it through these judgments all the way to the end? Question number one. Question number two. How should I respond to those who are being judged? If these judgments are happening now and that great judgment, what, what should I do? What should we do as Christians? Let's answer them both quickly before I close. So when you hear about the seals and you hear about the trumpets and you know it's taking place in our lifetime, right? this is not... Some future event, some speculative event. I think it's right to say, well, how how then do I survive them? How do I get through them? Look back with me, if you would, at verses three and four. Remember, before the trumpet started to blow, John saw another angel who came and stood at the altar with the golden censer. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Verse four. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So as we already, I previously mentioned, the, the altar of incense was right outside the veil, right outside the holiest of holy, that place where God would descend and commune with his people. And so it was the responsibility of the priest every single day in the morning and the evening to come and, and take incense from that altar so that the incense would burn all day and all night. 365 days a year, decade after decade and century after century. And the incense burning was symbolic for the unceasing prayers of God's people. Remember the smoke and the aroma would pass through the veil and into the presence of God, into the holies of holies, revealing what? Revealing number one, that God receives the prayers of his people day and night he hears us and number two, he's pleased with our prayers that it's a pleasant aroma to him when we pray. But this smoke, and again we're not, we're not, we don't come from a Jewish background so most of us don't know this. The smoke did not, the smoke and the aroma did not pass through the veil and entered the presence of God alone. The altar of incense first had to be, every single day, had to be purified by the blood that came from the altar of sacrifice. In other words, On the day of atonement, when the high priest was allowed to go into the holiest of holies, he would come and he'd bring blood and he would sprinkle the altar of incense before that incense was burned. And so the incense itself had to be made ready to be brought into the presence of God. You say, well, wait a minute. What's the connection with the incense in our prayers then? Your prayers are powerful because they have blood attached to them. Not only that, the 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 uh, the sensor that was used in order the coals that were used to make the sensor hot enough in order to burn the incense that coal came from the altar of sacrifice so both the fire and the blood that made the incense pleasing to god came from sacrifice calvin wrote this the altar of incense was purified by the sprinkling of blood so the people might learn that their prayers obtained acceptance through sacrifice. So when we pray for God to save us, when we pray for God to forgive us of our sins, when we pray for God to keep us all the way to the end through the judgments, those prayers are heard by God and they're pleasing to God, not because you are praying them, but because the blood of Jesus Christ that came from Calvary, that came from that altar of the cross, is attached to them. Your prayers are sanctified by the blood of Jesus. They're sanctified and made pure and therefore pleasing to the Father when he receives them. In other words, the only hope you have of surviving the judgments that come through the seals and the trumpets and we'll see the bowls, the only hope you have is the blood of Jesus Christ. The only hope you have is his death and his resurrection and you attaching your life and your prayers and your hope to him. His death, His resurrection, and your faith in His sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. You trusting in the fact that He entered once for all into the holiest places. Not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing what? An eternal redemption for His people you trusting in that blood being brought before God the Father and received as a pleasing offering as a pleasant aroma and you being attached to that and united with Christ in both his death and his resurrection through his death on the altar of sacrifice which is the cross Jesus becomes for us the pleasant aroma to the lord able to save hebrews 7:25 To the uttermost, those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for us. My beloved, you can know with great assurance that you will not be swept away by the seals, the trumpets, or the bulls, because Jesus has and He continues to intercede for you before the Father day and night. His blood guarantees your access. His intercession guarantees your perseverance. His blood gets you access. His intercession guarantees your perseverance. How long? All the way to the end. And just like the incense, day and night was burned by the priest to come into the presence of God, so too Jesus, who entered into the holiest of holies. His prayers, his intercession on your behalf, day and night, will ensure that you make it all the way to the end. And that means, my beloved, No time, no circumstance, no trial in this life, even the very judgment of God Himself will pull you away from Jesus Christ because He intercedes with His own blood on your behalf. In fact, just the opposite, your assurance is so great. We know from Hebrews chapter 10 that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, right? We can actually go in, we can enter into the throne room with God and pray to God, we can draw near to Him with full assurance of our faith, that we will not be swept away. So first, I pray that in hearing about these trumpets, as you did the seals and we will the bowls, you're not thinking, oh, I'm, I'm doomed. I'm never gonna make it. Not true. In Christ, his blood guarantees your access and your perseverance. But there's a second thing I want to consider before we close, and that is our response to the four judgments coming upon the earth and against all those who remain in in willful, unrepentant sin. Not only should the work of Christ interceding on our behalf, bringing salvation through judgment, encourage us, his intercession should compel us, I believe in love, to pray fervently for those who are being judged. Those who are being judged now and those who will be judged in the end. In the first point, I was encouraging you to pray for justice that you ask for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But as I close, I want to encourage you to add to your prayers for justice, prayers for salvation, right? It's right to pray that God justice come, but it's also right to pray for God to save those out of his judgment. And they don't stand against each other. You, we're supposed to pray for both. We pray, pray for God to act justly and pray for God to save many through judgment. The, the, the picture John presents here of the first four trumpets, it's comprehensive and it's catastrophic. And it, it should break our hearts, honestly. If we, if we truly know the Lord and we know the unsaved, then it should break our hearts for the judgment that they're getting now and will get on that last day. And it should cause us, I believe, as sinners once guilty, now saved by grace, to pray fervently that God would intercede on their behalf and save them too. Right? We should intercede, asking Christ to intercede to save so many that we know that do not know Christ. Um, I mean, we should obviously be faithful to sharing the gospel with all those in our mission field. Um, we should be faithful in making disciples. We should be faithful sending out missionaries, praying for missionaries, supporting missionaries. But if there's one thing that I, I want to I want to close on here. It's, it's the magnitude of the power of prayer in salvation. Your prayer, our prayer for the unsaved, certainly in our lives, and, and then we, we would add to those around the world that if, if, the, if your prayer has the blood of Christ attached to it, then it goes through the veil into the holiest of holies and it's presented for the Father and the Father loves it It's pleasing to him. Not because we are such great saints or our prayers are that powerful but because your prayers have the blood of Christ attached to it and God the Father loves the Son and he loves the sacrifice of the Son. And so we must pray and pray and pray more for the unsaved. We must petition God to be gracious and to intercede. Unworthy as we are And as poor as our prayers may be, God hears them, God receives them, and God answers them because of the blood of Christ. They make our prayers acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. One author put it like this. He said, the fragrance of the incense which Jesus offers perfumes ours and makes our prayers acceptable to God. Now, if you're going to be perfectly honest, there are times when your prayers feel and sound inept, do they not? And you're thinking, oh, he's not going to answer this. That was the worst prayer ever, right? Well, if it's a prayer that's lifted up in spirit and truth in accordance with the word and attached to the blood of Christ, that prayer is powerful. He hears it. He answers it because of the blood of the Lamb. And just as the incense in the temple is deemed acceptable by the blood and fire of the altar of sacrifice, our prayers are fueled by the blood and fire of the cross. Fueled by that. My beloved, in 2023, if there's one thing I can help change your mind with, and maybe you help me, is the power of our prayers to redeem the lost. Every day coming before God, entering that holy place by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, lifting up prayers that you know God finds beautiful, that he finds to be a pleasing aroma that he hears and that he answers. In 1989, I applied uh, for what's called AOCS, Aviation Officers Candidacy School. In 1989, I wanted to fly in the United States Navy. Now, at that time, the, the Navy was downsizing both pilots and ships. So, There were essentially no slots, no one was getting in. Um, I submitted my application anyway, it was a decent application, certainly not extraordinary by any means. That is until my roommate's father, Colonel James Wilson, an SR-71 pilot with the United States Air Force wrote me a glowing letter of recommendation, letter of recommendation from an SR-71 pilot in the United States Air Force going to the Navy spoke great volumes this full board colonel's endorsement suddenly made my application going from ordinary to extraordinary. In other words, it was pleasing. It was a pleasing aroma to the Navy. Even more so that the Navy was going to get a pilot instead of the Air Force. By God's grace, I was granted one of six slots nationwide and got into AOCS because of the letter written by Colonel James Wilson. My beloved Jesus' blood attached to our prayers is nothing short of a game changer. It changes everything. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 14, he said this to his disciples, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You say, well, how is that possible? Because if you ask it in Jesus' name, you're asking it in his sacrifice, in his blood. His blood's attached to your prayers. What power there is in the blood of Christ? And therefore what power there is in the prayers that you lift up. So when you pray for your children's salvation. When you pray for your parents or brothers and sisters who do not know the Lord. When you pray for family members that you spent Christmas with that do not know Christ. When you pray for that coworker that you love so much but has no interest in in the gospel or kingdom things, when you pray for God to move here in the South Bay or around the world, saving many from his own judgment, God moves. God saves in response to your prayers for the glory of his son to glorify and magnify the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we must, unless we are utterly foolish, we must keep praying. We must pray fervently like that incense before the altar, day and night, always passing through, always coming into the presence of the Father, saying, Lord, save this one. Lord, save this one. Each of us right now, if I said, let's take five minutes and write that list out, you wouldn't t- it would take too long. You'd say, I need more than five minutes. I need 10. And you would write and you'd write and you'd write all these souls that you know that will receive what? Judgment, if not for Christ the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, and then the great day. We must plead for God to move and save the lost for their good and for his glory. So in 2023, let's commit, let's commit to being a people who pray often and pray fervently. Let's pray for God's justice to come and let's pray for God to save many out of his own judgment. Let's pray knowing that the sacrifice of Jesus, the blood of Jesus attached to your prayers makes your prayers powerful and pleasing to the Lord. They fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 56. Listen and I'll close. Isaiah prophesied this. The foreigners, that's us, the non-Jews will join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants These, speaking of the church, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted by on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. If that is the name of God's house, and we are members of that house, then we need to be a people who pray fervently. Amen? Let me pray right now. heavenly father we, we're so thankful for the imagery of the the altar of incense and that pleasant aroma arising up to you day and night and the fact that our prayers, like the incense, Lord, have the blood of Christ and the fire of the cross attached to it so we can we can as an unworthy people as people who pray poorly, come before you day and night, knowing that you are are pleased to receive and answer the prayers of the saints. If this is true, Father, and and the judgment that is upon us and the judgment that is coming is true also, that it is as widespread and catastrophic as we heard just in these first four trumpets, then I pray you would give us hearts to pray fervently and quickly for all those upon whom the judgment is coming and will come. I pray, Lord, that we be faithful to pray for those that we know by name. That we would lift them up to you and ask that you would intercede on their behalf through Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would pray on behalf of those that we do not know by name. So many here in in the South Bay and in California, in this nation and throughout the world, so many who have never heard the gospel, who have never had a chance to repent and believe. I pray, Lord, that we would pray for them. We'd send missionaries to them. We'd plant churches for them. Father, if if I were to ask for one thing in 2023, I would would ask that we be a a prayerful people. That we would realize we are are truly dependent upon you for everything. We have no hope of escaping judgment now or in the end. And we have no hope of people being saved out of judgment apart from you. So make us a prayer-filled people. Individually and collectively as a body, Lord. Let us spend more time on our knees in 2023 praying to you for transformation, for justice, and for salvation than complaining about it. I ask that you do that, Lord, to sanctify us as a church so that we might be known as a praying church. And do that, Lord, for all those that are ordained to be saved. I pray, Lord, for blessings upon us in 2023. Be pleased to do great work here for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.